0: my notes out with me yesterday walking on the ridgeway and practice preaching to cows. So um, I do actually genuinely, I've already found this morning two squashed flies in my notes, so if I get lost I'm just going to blame that. Um, So I'm actually going to start with a little story of something that happened um, on my daughter Asmara's first birthday. So she's nearly nine now, but on her first birthday we were in Mexico and Asmara became Really unwell. Um, she stopped eating, nearly stopped drinking altogether. When she did drink, she was immediately sick um, and she became dangerously dehydrated. So we took her to, to a local hospital and I turned up carrying my really limp and floppy one year old. Um, I went to the reception desk and the man told me, Well, we need your insurance details before we can treat her, which we gave him. And then he said, And then a couple of minutes later, I found out actually I'd booked the entirely wrong dates of our holiday with the insurance company, and we were entirely uninsured. To add to that, he said, "Well, we, you know, we can we can accept a credit card." Got our credit card out, and he said, um, "Oh, you don't have a high high enough credit limit." So I'm there with my floppy one-year-old that's responding less and less, and I'm being refused medical treatment. Thankfully, we were on holiday with Angus and Carol. So Angus turns up, he has a higher credit limit on his credit card. <laughs> and we did get treated as Mara got treatment. And the next morning, we were handed a $2,500 invoice, um, which we knew we weren't insured for. And she still wasn't better, she still wasn't well. So at this point, we're thinking, are we going to lose our house? Like, how, how is this going to go? Now, I'm probably leaving Angus, Carol, and Doug having heart palpitations here as they remember how horrendous this situation was. But I'm actually going to, oh, I'm actually going to come back to the end of that story later on. So you have to stay and listen to me now. Um, so today, we are reaching the climax of the story in Esther chapters 8 to 10. Now, forgive me for all of you who have been here through the summer... Um, but I am going to quickly recap because I know that I wasn't here for half of these um, preachers, because it's obviously holiday season. Um, so we opened in chapters one to two, looking at the greatness of Xerxes, king of the Persian Empire. Xerxes displays his greatness with an obscene 187 days of feasting, at the end of which he deposes Queen Vashti and then we get Queen Esther. Oh, it looks looks like this. Oh, slides are working. Um, Esther's cousin Mordecai is an important character in this story too. So he overhears a plot to murder the king and ends up saving the king's life. We then have Haman, who King Xerxes elevates to second in command of his empire. Haman's the baddie. Um, He asks all the officials to bow before him and Mordecai, who's a Jew, refuses to do so. Um, And so then Haman persuades the king to enact a decree to kill all of the Jews, not not just Mordecai. He rolls a dice to decide when the date of annihilation will be, and it's set for 11 months' time. Esther and Mordecai plan to reverse this decree, and Esther bravely goes before the king, which she wasn't allowed to do uninvited. But she wins favour in the king's sight, and Esther invites King Xerxes and Haman to her first banquet. Haman, at this point, sees Mordecai in the street, is filled with rage, and makes a plan to impale him on a 20-metre-high pole that he's erected on his house. So, a bit insane. Um, The king can't sleep that night, however, and he asks for the chronicles of his reign to be read to him, and he's reminded that four years earlier, Mordecai had saved his life. He would totally forgotten. And then he asks Haman to honour Mordecai by parading him through the street and shouting, this is what happens to someone who the king wishes to honour. So a bit of a turnaround for Mordecai and for Haman. And finally, two weeks ago, Debs looked at the second banquet that Esther held, where she tells the king she's Jewish. And that Haman has plotted to kill the Jews, and King Xerxes is filled with rage, orders Haman to be impaled on the pole that he had erected for Mordecai, and that's the end of Haman. So now we've reached chapter 8 today, and we have a problem, because although Esther has successfully entered the king's presence, and Haman has been defeated, actually King Xerxes' edict cannot be reversed. This is because the kings of Persia were seen as messengers from the gods, and therefore their royal edicts were meant to be infallible. So we're going to pick up from chapter 8. I will be skipping a verse or two for time because I want to fit it in, Um, but I'm going to read from chapter 8, verse 1. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews, and Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favour... And thinks it the right thing to do. And if he's pleased with me, let an order be written, overruling the dispatches that Haman devised. King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, write another, sorry, write another decree in the king's name in behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked." So, in the passage, Mordecai has been brought by Esther into the presence of the king, and King Xerxes has reclaimed his signet ring from Haman, and he presents it here to Mordecai. In the ancient world, the signet ring signified the king's authority. So anyone who was given it could press it into wax, seal an edict, and could essentially issue an edict in the name of the king. We see that now Mordecai has full authority to write and send out a new edict. He's essentially partnering with Xerxes in ruling, and this moment is symbolic for us. You still here, all right? Yeah. Um, Haman the Jew, uh, Haman the enemy of the Jews, was defeated in chapter seven, and now we see his authority being wrested away from him and given to Mordecai. In the same way that when Satan was defeated at the cross, his authority was taken and given to the followers of Jesus in order that they, which is to say us, may partner with God in ruling. We see this described in Ephesians 1 verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. When you believed, you were marked in him with a seal the promised Holy Spirit. And Paul is likening us for the Holy Spirit to us being stamped by God's signet ring. This means that in the same way Mordecai has been given authority to speak in the name of King Xerxes, actually, we've been given the Holy Spirit as a sign of God's authority too. And something else that stood out to me here, we saw in chapter five, when Esther goes to the king with his gold scepter, Xerxes asks, what is your request? Then again, the first banquet, Xerxes asks, what is your request? And the second banquet, what is your request? This final time in the story, Esther goes before the king. But it seems that this time she feels confident in her identity as queen, or at least that she's aware that she's found favour in the eyes of her husband, the king. And so this time, she doesn't wait to be asked, she just goes for it. And she goes, she asks for what she wants. And this is something we can learn for Esther. I know um, recently someone prayed for me and they said, God says to you, ask for what you want. And I literally had no idea what I wanted. And it struck me afterwards, I'd come into the presence of my heavenly father, the king. And I didn't even know what I wanted I didn't go expecting to be asked, but actually we see a total of six times in the Gospels that Jesus asked people, what do you want me to do for you? We not only can, but we are encouraged to come before the King and present our request to him. It's important we understand the identity that we now have because of Jesus. We are not outsiders, unable to enter the courts of the King. We are royalty, royalty co-heirs with Christ. The enemy loves it when after we accept forgiveness for our sins, we then expect nothing more. But we saw in verse one that what was in the hands of Haman the enemy is taken from him and given to Esther. We can approach without ceremony and without fear. In Hebrews it tells us, Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So I'm going to keep reading. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children and to plunder the property of their enemies. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. We see here that the Jews weren't just saved. They are given authority to crush their enemies and to plunder their defeated foes. But just to be clear, this was not a decree to exterminate non-Jews. This was a proclamation that those who, even after the second edict had gone out, those who still wanted to attack the Jews, they could be defeated and plundered. And in our own context, this is no, um, this is no way an encouragement to attack our persecutors. We know Jesus forbids this. And it may actually be why, um, you know, although the Jews are given permission to plunder their enemies, three times in the text it explicitly tells us they didn't do this. But our battle is not with flesh and blood. It's with the enemy. It's with the devil. The good news sent out by Mordecai is like the prophecy in Genesis of the serpent biting the heel of a man as his head is crushed by the same heel. This is the last ditched attempt of the defeated enemy to do some damage. And we also have been given a proclamation that the devil has been crushed and defeated and that we have been given authority to crush him beneath our feet. And yes, we absolutely can plunder his defeated realm. The Jews, just like us, don't need to, be, don't need to fear that enemy any longer. They are, we are on the victorious side. So, we may be forgiven for reading the story of Esther and initially thinking that King Xerxes was a genocidal maniac. Or at least, he must have had a really hateful heart towards the Jews to sign off such an edict. However, when Esther goes to Xerxes and says that her people have been sold to be annihilated... King Xerxes responds with outrage. Who is he? Where is he, the man who has dared to do such a thing? Esther in the Bible is somewhat more subtle than I am, so she doesn't say, well, you're the one that signed off the edict. But when his eyes were opened to what it was really about, he was horrified. And sometimes it struck me that we hold back from speaking up when actually it may well be That what we have to say speaks God's heart into already fertile soil. King Xerxes was ready to hear what Esther had to say. And he didn't take convincing. Within the evening, Haman was impaled on a pole. It wasn't enough, though, that Xerxes was ready to hear what Esther had to say. She still had to actually go and she still had to actually speak. Something she continues to do here, and we see that Xerxes' heart remains ready to receive what Esther has to say. So I'll head back to the text. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. When Mordecai left the king's presence, he was wearing royal garments of blue and white, a large crown of gold, and a purple robe of fine linen. And the city of Susa held a joyous celebration. For the Jews, it was a time of happiness and joy, gladness and honour in every province and in every city to which the edict of the king came. There was joy and gladness among the Jews with feasting and celebrating and many people of other nationalities became Jews because fear of the Jews had seized them. So when I read this passage, I'm reminded of the scripture in Isaiah 52 that says, how beautiful on the mountain are the feet of those who bring good news. Just imagine what it would have felt like for those Jews to see those riders approaching and to hear the edict read out. How beautiful must the feet of those couriers have been to the Jews. And as Christians, I think we can sometimes forget how good the good news really is. We know it's good news for us. But if we're honest, do we sometimes convince ourselves that others don't want to hear it? You know, Colin's talking about us going in a few weeks' time. How many of us are thinking, are people really going to want me to go up to them and talk to them about Jesus? Sometimes that's how we can go, isn't it? But we know it's good news for us. And so it's absolutely good news for others. The good news is life. The Jews were a condemned people. Prior to the second good news edict going out, they were the living dead. They knew their days were numbered. They knew what awaited them. But suddenly, in an instant, it all changed. And that's the case for us too. We were dead in our sin, but Christ died for us, and so we are no longer the condemned, but the redeemed. And the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, the good news changes everything. The writer is also conveying something to us here of how the good news is sent out, because initially it was sealed with the king's signet ring, so with authority, and then sent by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. So it went out with speed and with urgency. There's no lethargy here. Like sometimes we are guilty of treating the sharing of the gospel in our churches today. We are those couriers carrying the seal of the king that is the Holy Spirit. Who authenticates his message. And we are to take the king's message to those who have not heard it. For it is good news of the power to save. And just as Mordecai leaves the presence of the king... Dressed as royalty, it should inspire us to rise up with faith, to start asserting the new authority that God has given us. We also see here a complete reversal in the well-being and the countenance of God's people. What was described in chapter 4 after the first edict as great mourning, fasting, weeping and lamenting, has now turned into joy, gladness, feasting and celebration, And for anyone here going through mourning, weeping, heartache or fear, we know that weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. And we actually sung that this morning, didn't we? Um, Yeah, I'm really aware that there'll be some people listening to this morning who are in the midst of that. And we want to pray for you guys at the end. So finally, in chapter eight, we see many saved. This shouldn't be a surprise to us. In fact, our Persian brothers and sisters that are here with us today um, are testimony that when the church is persecuted, the church grows. In Iran, which is modern-day Persia, it is illegal if you're born a Muslim to become a Christian, and it's punishable by death. But the Iranian church continues to grow. So much so, when I used to live in Teesside, I was actually part of a Farsi-speaking small group, It's made up of asylum seekers and refugees who love Jesus, and they were now the ones sharing the gospel in the northeast of England. So rather than destroying the people of God, this persecution caused them to grow in number. See, it says fear of the Jews had seized them, but it seems really unlikely that the Persians would have been fearful of a minority ethnic group amongst them, that they were up until now ready to annihilate. I think we can read this story as they feared the God of the Jews. We know the is intentionally avoiding mentioning God in the book of Esther. And so this is how he conveys that same sentiment. The non-believers of Persia were witnesses of how the God of Israel protected his followers. And they turned to God themselves. On top of this, Scripture tells us that in the book of Ezra, the Persian government, who was suspicious, of the Jewish people, had forbidden them to go and rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. However, the future king, Artaxerxes, who is the son of Xerxes, was aged about 10 at the time of this story. And later, when he becomes king, he becomes one of the greatest champions of the rebuilding of Jerusalem, even financing the building work himself. He, aged 10, would have been witness of this miraculous deliverance of the Jews and seeing their God work out their salvation. So I love this first verse of chapter 9, which will be up here now. On the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, the edict commanded by the king was to be carried out. On this day, the enemies of the Jews had hoped to overpower them, but now the tables were turned and the Jews got the upper hand over those who hated them. This is the great turning of the tables. Everything that the enemy had intended for evil, God turned it round. Not only, of course, to save Esther and Mordecai or the Jewish people, but actually out of them came Jesus and the salvation for the whole world. So a carpenter from Nazareth, born to a virgin, living his life as a man and being put to death in the most shameful way. The Romans version of the pole Haman was impaled on. This man, Jesus, breathes his last, is placed in a tomb. And we know what's coming next because we know the Easter story. But if you put yourself for a minute in the sandals of the disciples, what were they thinking? It all seems hopeless. What's going to happen next? But then the tables are turned. The tables of all of human history are turned as Jesus is raised to life, defeating sin and death, winning for us the greatest victory ever known, mourning to joy, death to life, condemned to redeemed, this is the story of the gospel, hallelujah. And I'm now just going to summarise chapter 9, because I don't have time to read it all, but um, basically the, those enemies of the Jews who did still decide to attack, um, attack the, jewels, the, the Jews, um, they were then killed, and the governors and king's administrators also decided to stand with the Jews. And in verse 20, we read that Mordecai recorded these events And he sent letters to all the Jews throughout the provinces of King Xerxes near and far to have them celebrate annually the 14th and 15th days of the month of Adar as the time when the Jews got relief from their enemies and as the month when their sorrow was turned to joy and their mourning into a day of celebration. It's good here to realise that when Haman rolled the dice back in chapter 3, it was the dice that decided the massacre would fall on the 13th of Adar. 11 months away. As already mentioned, the edict could not be gotten rid of. So, this gave plenty of time for all the events of this story to occur. For Mordecai to overhear a plot to kill the king and be able to tell Esther, who was in a position to tell the king, to save his life, to be elevated to a position of power, to then issue his own counter edict, to be sent out and to reach the far flung corners of the Persian Empire. I think that's India to Ethiopia. Um, and then, and all of that to happen before the day that the Jews were due to be killed. So it's fitting then that actually this celebration is called Purim, which comes from Pur, the name of the dice that were rolled to decide the fate of the Jews. This is a crazy kind of ironic reversal in the story. This was now the name for their celebration of salvation and a permanent reminder To us, that even in the darkness, our God is working all things for our good behind the scenes. So, the last bit of scripture now we're into chapter 10, it's only three verses. King Xerxes imposed tribute throughout the empire to its distant shores, and all his acts of power and might, together with a full account of the greatness of Mordecai, whom the king had promoted, are they not written in the book of the annals of the kings of Media and Persia? Mordecai the Jew was second in rank to King Xerxes, preeminent among the Jews and held in high esteem by his many fellow Jews because he worked for the good of his people and spoke for the welfare of the Jews. So we started the book of Esther with, Mordecai, with King Xerxes being um, elevated and you know, the, sorry, the greatness of King Xerxes and we're finishing it with the greatness of Mordecai. It's one reversal that's part of a greater pattern of reversals that happens throughout Esther. And Helena talked about this in week two because it happens throughout the narrative of Esther. We might initially think that it is a few kind of coincidences, but by the time we're at this point in the story, it's really clear that there is a God who's working behind the scenes in this story. So the Jews who are condemned were saved. Their weeping was turned to rejoicing. There's a legal... Turn around with the edict. there's a political turnaround, an economic turnaround in this story. And now today we read that Mordecai leaves the presence of the king clothed in royal robes, with a crown upon his head. Finally, there's a spiritual reversal. So I've got the um, overview that we had at the beginning up on the screen. And actually, if we add today's stories to it, Esther and Mordecai planning to reverse the decree. Mordecai's counter-decree to save the Jews, and then Mordecai being elevated, and finally the greatness of Mordecai, as well as the establishment of the feasts, we can see that actually the whole story is designed to be like a reversal throughout, all hinging on that story of Mordecai being honoured by Haman. Can you see how actually each bit is then sort of reversed throughout the story? And I think this is a really clever design of the book, the author, and, and, and kind of explains why God isn't really mentioned. Because, because it's showing us that even though God's not mentioned in this story, we can see his work throughout what, what's happened. Everything the enemy planned for evil was turned around and used for the salvation of God's people. There's not even mention of prayer in this story. And yet we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Esther and Mordecai were called. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Which is what we see here in the story. So, I am going to finish my, the end of my Mexico story. Um, we got together and we prayed in the hotel room, me, Doug, Angus, and Carol. We all ran off to be sick. We all went well. It was the worst prayer meeting that's ever happened. But <laughs> that doesn't matter because God, He was there with us. And um, as I left that hotel room, I got a phone call from the insurance company. They asked how Asmara was. I said she's still not very well at all, she had a night in hospital. I wasn't I wasn't gonna bother following up the insurance company because we all know insurance companies don't need a reason not to pay out and I had handed them one on a silver platter. So um yeah so then you know in the midst of this dark situation it's it was hard to see God's hand in it. But what happened next? So The man on the phone said to me, we've decided we would like to insure you anyway. They paid for everything, including us changing our flights home, thousands of pounds. Um, And, you know, I had a friend afterwards that said to me, that's a bigger miracle than Jesus feeding 5,000 people, getting an insurance company to pay up when they don't have to. Um, And it did feel like it at the time. But although we found this incident harrowing, When I look back and I see what God did and I can see that he was with us there the whole time, working it through, sometimes it's only with the benefit of hindsight that we're able to see, wow, look where we were, look where he's brought us and look how he's carried us. And it was exactly Olive's story today, wasn't it? I don't doubt there were times in the middle of what she was going through that she wasn't just feeling like, God, where are you? But actually he was carrying her through. He's with us the whole time. And I'm just going to finish with a last little story, like a story. Um, About a month ago, I was catching up on a Steve Whittington preach. He'd preached on Sunday and um, I wasn't in the meeting. So I was listening to it on the way to Audi. I got to Audi feeling really challenged. And the problem is there's lots of people in Audi and I'm feeling freshly challenged to go. And... um, And I see this lady with a bad leg and I'm like, I've got to pray for her. So I stood looking at the fetter for the best part of 10 minutes while I tried to convince myself to talk to her. I approached her. She's with her partner. And I said to her, I felt God wanted me to tell you that he really loves you. And can I pray for you? Except I was way more garbled than that. The lady looked at me, slight panic on her face. And guess what? She said no. So at this point, I said, no problem. And I continued with my shop, hoping I didn't bump into her again in the next aisle. So it wasn't necessarily how I wanted it to go. But as I walked home, I felt the pleasure of God. Because I realised it's actually about stepping out until it becomes a normal thing that we do. It was massive the first time Esther went to the king. But it passes us by almost that it happened again in chapter 8 here. She did it a second time. She just goes in. We don't even really notice. And ultimately, I have no idea what God is doing behind the scenes. So if going and sharing the gospel news is scary for you, I hope that this story that we've gone through today has encouraged you because if we are to take anything from it, we can understand that by the grace of God, we get to play a part in what he's doing. We get to be ambassadors bringing his message of salvation. But we may have no idea what else he's doing behind the scenes. This should embolden us. That lady I spoke to didn't want me to pray with her. I know God sees her and thankfully his entire plan for her life was not centred on me nailing that conversation. He is always doing more behind the scenes. What a privilege that we are here for such a time as this to be a part of what he's doing. So I'll finish with a question. Would we step out more? Would we go to those around us? if we believed God was working behind the scenes in our life and the lives of those around us. So I think we've got a little bit of time for response, I don't know. But um, if you do want prayer, please do come up and someone will pray for you. Um, you, you. In particular, I've got a few things here. So you may be feeling this morning under attack. Maybe you heard my story and thought, well, God's not doing that. In my situation. What the enemy intends for harm, God does turn the tables on. And as we've seen, the story of Esther, it doesn't mean that the bad doesn't happen. The bad was still happening. The Jews still spent many months believing they were going to be annihilated. But joy does come in the morning. And if you're currently journeying through the pain and through the night, we would like to stand with you in prayer. If you felt freshly challenged by, this morning by Jesus' call to go, the good news edict was sent out from the throne room. We come first to the king and from the foot of the throne we're sent out. So we'd like to pray for you. I believe there's, there might be a few people here this morning who actually feel that they only ask things of God, that they feel there's a good chance will happen anyway. Because they don't want to be disappointed by our answer prayer. But he is your good father. The cattle on a thousand hills are his. He wants you to come to him. He wants you to ask. And finally, Esther inherited the riches of Haman because he lay cursed on a pole. Well, Jesus was impaled and cursed on a cross so that you might inherit everlasting life. The difference being Jesus was blameless and he chose to go there for you and for me because he loves us. So if you want to respond to the good news that Jesus died for you because he loves you, please also respond. Thank you.